When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi all, this is Ranger Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and CK. Today we have Michael Kinsey of Reverend Wild Ranch calling out from Georgia. What part of Georgia are you in, Michael? Chickamauga, Georgia. So that's north, upper northwest Georgia. Perfect. All right, I'm going to give it to you, Brian. All right, thanks, CK. Mike, it's great to have you here. So so tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, uh, tell us your history and your education. What's the story of Michael? Here we go. Let's launch off into the deep. Um, I did not go to school for this uh, to be a rancher. I was not brought up in a family of ranchers. I'm first generation. So um, I guess I'll start just with um, kind of what set me on this path. Um, I kind of owe a debt of gratitude to one of my best friend's grandparents who are retired dairy farmers in South Carolina. I grew up uh, going to their farm multiple times a year and would help them. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, where the first spark of passion uh, for this right. profession came from. Um, and then as, as I got older, um, I was in FFA in high school and that's about as close to um, I guess, any applicable agricultural education I ever got. Um, I had a fabulous, fabulous agriculture teacher um, who also I I owe a debt of gratitude to as far as just instilling even or furthering that passion, if you will. Um, But then I ended up after high school, I went to a small Christian liberal arts college in Cleveland, Tennessee, Lee University. um, Mm -hmm. And I met my wife there. And after that, I I mean, when I graduated, I got a marketing degree, um, left there, moved to uh, Metro Atlanta, worked in a couple different fields, but most for the majority of that time, for about five years, I worked in the commercial construction industry Um, and kind of just that that whole time from the time I was in high school all the way through college, through that, my early career, I guess you would say, Mm -hmm. I, I never... Uh, I always had that passion in me. I was always reading, you know, Joel Salatin books or any, any kind of book that was, you know, kind of geared more towards the regenerative ag uh, side of things. I was uh, in my spare time. That's what I was doing or listening to podcasts or uh, watching videos, talks given by Gabe Brown or, you know, just all kinds of stuff. So um, that's kind of the quick and dirty of it. Um, And finally, I kind of just hit a breaking point with where I was. Um, it just wasn't, I, I was tired of dealing with, first of all, Metro Atlanta uh, has a lot of, people. there's a lot of people there. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, not exactly where I grew up. I grew up in a pretty rural area. Um, and so I wasn't happy there. Um, and it was time for a change. And me and my wife kind of just decided, you know what, if we're going to try this, um, it now's the time. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back, um, my wife was diagnosed with some, uh, like pretty, pretty severe thyroid condition. 
and okay. uh, was told that she'd be on medication the rest of her life. And uh, it can, her condition kind of continually kept devolving. Um, and so finally, um, I kind of felt a little helpless as a husband to be able to do anything to help her. And uh, finally, she sought the help of a holistic, more holistic-based doctor who told her to go strictly organic, Put her, took her off her medication, put her on a bunch of uh, natural herbal-based supplements, and she saw significant improvement. Um, and I know that may not be the story or work for everybody, but it worked for her. And I kind of basically said, you know what, I, if there's one thing I think I can do, it's I can help be a part of growing healthy food for people. Right. And so that was kind of the thing that launched us towards, okay, let's actually try this because she's not the only person we know who's dealing with those kind of. Right. So uh, anyway, that's kind of the quick and dirty, if you will, of kind of point A to point B that what got us here. Oh, that, that was great. That was perfect. I was, you know, my follow-up question to that is, you know, what got you interested in ranching, but you know, yeah. you, no, you that answers it. Perfectly. Yeah. yeah. I love too, that you said, even though this works for her, it may not work for everyone. Like, but this is why we're doing it because we know that it works for her. So it's got to work for other people too. And I think that's the same thing with regenerate regenerative ranching versus conventional. It's like, we know not everyone needs it, but, or yeah. can do it, but it's working for us. And we see, we see uh, a mission to do this. So we're going to do it. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think I, I've kind of been on that. My friend do what? My friend Ellen Moeller uh, last year at Soil Health U, she had a really great quote that I'd like to share. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Soil Health is a journey. You start where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So the title is Ranching Reboot. And mm -hmm. for this first series of episodes, we really want to focus on new guys like you um, mm -hmm. that don't necessarily come from a traditional ranching background. Yeah. And you know, we want to talk about some of the new and innovative things that are going on in ranching and yeah. especially how to, how to get started, how to go find contacts in livestock mm -hmm. and, and acquire resources and where you acquire knowledge. So, so where did okay. you acquire your startup okay. resources and land base? Um, well, I'll, I'll start with, I don't know if you've seen Brian or not, my, the small series I did of, so you want to be a rancher on TikTok. Um, I, I think I, I saw a few. I don't know yeah, if I, caught, I, I had time to catch all of them. Yeah, that's I love fine. your content, Mike. It's it's a big world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, I understand completely. Um, it's really I, I tried to cover some of those things for some people as far as um, and I, one of my biggest things for folks that want to get into this is mm -hmm. my, my mantra is you need to get knowledge and experience uh, before because there's so many people that just think, well, oh, if I just had land, I could do it. And, yeah. Um, and the that was kind of where I was. I mean, I spent almost a decade uh, of research on the ground uh, trying to get my mind wrapped around all the nuances of this. And then as the moment your boots hit the ground and it's like, OK, I just bought my cows, I've you know, leased this property. Uh, you realize how little you actually know, no matter how much you've done. Uh, Scary. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> But I, that's why I, trigger effect maybe yeah exactly yeah. you know that's why i say you have to have knowledge and experience because i was very knowledge rich uh but i was experience poor and right. 
so those the, that's why I preach that as a mantra to folks that want to get into this because uh, I just try to help people avoid making the same mistakes I had to make or learning the hard way. Um, so that's one thing. Secondly, Brian, you asked how I got my land base is I ended up through a series of different contacts. We looked for farms for a long time. We, we had it in our head like, okay, we're going to buy a farm um, because it just seemed like leasing was like this daunting task, couldn't find my lease. And honestly, it, it was one of those things that I can only say it was a God ordained thing because it just, all the pieces fell into place. Right. Uh, my, my, uh, you know, one of my wife's relatives ended up saying, Hey, like I've got this place. Like, why don't you lease it? <laughs> just bizarre. Like one of those things. So I, it was always something that was like, I never even knew this was an existing possibility. So that was my situation was kind of a fluke, but as far as, um, generally speaking you've been, most- you've been talking about it for a while you've been thinking about it you've been planning you've been looking at things and mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm sure your family had heard these things you'd planted yeah. the idea that you know definitely looking for something oh, and definitely. when they hear of an opportunity they remember to tell you so yeah. um it kind of goes back with what hobbs was saying on our last episode about mm-hmm. you know you have to build contacts and about you know working you know putting conscious effort every day towards your dream Absolutely. And and me and Hobbs are of one mind when it comes to that. I'm very big into, um, you know, if you're passionate about something and you want to pursue it, you got to kind of put that out there into the universe and uh, and pursue it. And sometimes pursuit of that dream doesn't look like, um, you know, necessarily moving cows or working for someone who's a rancher. It may just be simply not giving up on it uh, because I, I just know so many people that I worked with who, when I turned my notice in at the job I was at, was I had a great job. Like, and they were just like, when I told them what I was going to do, they're like, Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I wish I had done that. I was, you know, and so you you see all these guys that were much my senior um, who were very supportive of that. And it's just like, well, not to say that, you know, anybody and everybody's made to do this because most people are, and most people definitely look at it through rose-colored glasses, but there's a lot of people that give up on their agricultural dreams and right. just stick with a cubicle. So um, to those people, that those are the people I, I you know would definitely say just don't give up on it. Keep putting it out there uh, into the uni- universe because I never thought I would be able to do this until I was probably retired. Like I always just thought like this is something I'll just keep in the back of my head and I'll research it and stuff. And by the time I'm ready to do it, you know, I'll just know everything <laughs> instead. Uh, that was not the plan. Right. And I, I think that was part of a trap of, of a previous generation or two is, you know, Oh, we yeah. college, you get a town job and, yeah. and work. And then we'll retire. Maybe we can retire to come back from the farm. And yeah that model has never really worked. I mean, average age in agriculture, uh, let's see, I've been doing this now, I'll be, this is my 15th year. They all year. should be retiring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, average age should eventually come down, but it keeps yes. going up and that's yes. the crazy thing. Yeah. Because, well, and for a lot of people, and I know for myself included, like I've had to have conscious talks with my wife where I say like, cause we have a little boy and who is, almost two years old and I'm at the point where I'm already thinking trying to think that far in advance is okay what's gonna happen one day when I'm 
retirement age if if he wants to take over the farm, you know, because I feel like there's so many people out there who either have convinced their children that the farm is not for them, you know, that you can't make, mm, yeah, or, or that do not want to turn over the reins, uh, yeah, this control thing. And also, I won't deny that there's probably a lot of people that are in similar boats to me. That this is just this is what they enjoy. They just like, yeah. Doing it. And so, even though it's hard, they like doing it, and they never known anything else. So the thought of just handing that to someone else is like, well, why? I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Why would I retire? Um, but you know, that that gets into all kinds of other issues. You know, socio political issues and economic issues. So. Generation succession, and yeah, that's those are probably future podcast episodes. Definitely. So. A thing I've been curious about for a while, and yeah. your brand is terrific, and I haven't actually published my brand design for Red Hills Rancher, but it's yeah. it's kind of basically going to be very very similar to yours, but you know it's go- it's going to be the the R backwards R with an H shoved in between it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, okay, Heck yeah, that's original. awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how did you come up with Reverend Wild Ranch? Let's uh, let's go ahead and get okay, into that a little um, bit because I know you have a good story. Well, here. Um, it, so names, I, I like, if you knew me like really personally, you'd know, like my, I'm very uh, particular about names and names like carry a lot of weight for me. And I don't know if that's you have a marketing I'm, degree. So things like that are important. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. But, but I mean, just beyond that, um, I, I think it probably, you know, subconsciously has to do with the fact that I'm named after my father and I always like carried that weight of like what my name meant uh you know it was it mm-hmm. wasn't like it wasn't just a label for me it was like carrying a banner if you will so I kind of carried that or projected that into what the name of the ranch should be um so I I toiled over it for a long time like there was a quite a good while we were here in operation with no name uh just because I, I had not settled on anything and finally um, I just made a list. Um, my wife told me, she was like, just make a list of all the words you're thinking about, that you're kicking around, the names you're thinking of. And so I just made a list of words that all had some significant meaning to me. Mm-hmm. And she, and then I handed her that list and she actually like just looked at it and said, well, what about, she's like, I like reverent. What about reverent and wild? Because what about Reverend Wild Farms? And I said, well, I was like, and that was when my marketing degree kicked in. Because I said, no, 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 Reverend Wild Ranch. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I was like, so it's uh, so that was that was it. I mean, from that point forward, there was no. You just had back. the aha moment. Yeah, yeah that was that, it. We'll work with that. Um, so, and then I set out to okay, now I've got to design the brand, and yeah. that was another long process for me of like. In fact, I'm sitting here at my desk. Let me see if I can pull out. I know it's buried in here somewhere. I've got like little sketch pads with all kinds of like previous designs on them. I won't sit here and search forever, but if I can find it, I'll pull it up and show it to you, Brian. But I know I, exactly what you're talking about, though. I, my husband yeah. and I are thinking of doing a business, that business. We're like, what do we call it? Like, even though we're a year away, we oh, like okay. have no idea. Well, I think you should start no thinking idea. about it. 
you should definitely start thinking about it now. Well, it, but I'm saying our sketch pad, we're writing names down, making lists. What do you think of this name? It should be a name of a forage, a local forage in the area. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Blue Sim Vet here in Kansas we're friends with, or like Red Hills Rancher. Like that's just to me, I love it. So I love it too. Um, um, the, to me, from a, from a marketing perspective, I mean, it, this is where the one the one thing that my my degree has actually helped me in is it's just in this avenue. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Is just being able to say like, okay, like, well, that flows good, and be able to look at like other major brands and like, okay, well, what's good about that brand that it's yeah. Um, and, and so anyway, that I spent a while designing my brand, um, and I had a probably 40, 50 one-offs of just crumple up the paper and throw it away and I finally did the same thing I narrowed it down to like three or four that I was like okay I could go with either one of these but for various reasons um and then finally my wife was I let her make the decision because you know it's easier to give it to somebody else I'm like okay which out of these three which one do you like the best she's like that one I was like cool we'll do that awesome yeah and you know, I just, I just want to say for the people that are listening that aren't necessarily involved in ag and never been around cattle, you know, the brand is the brand you put on your cattle and that's your mark of ownership. Yes. And it's, it, it, it can't be colored. It has to be very simple yep. and lines. And it also kind of has to be representative of your outfit or translate, translate to something, you know, mm-hmm. some symbol. Um, I saw one today, one this morning on TikTok that somebody said there was a, a shithouse brand. And I, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so like your brand is, is, I mean, it's terrific, represents you. And I think that's kind of the important point to get across, um, especially to somebody that's starting out is, yeah, there is a lot of significance in a name because mm-hmm. that name and that brand is going to represent you, your ranch. And your cattle mm-hmm. forever, ever, correct. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, the, the next legacy. Yeah, yeah. That that's the gravity that I had like resting on my shoulders. And I know anybody else who's ever like you know sat down and been like, okay, I've got this cattle ranch. I need to come up with a brand because um, I had to think about it too from a perspective of what would I like to see you know branded on the rump of my cows one day because. And this is something you may you may understand, Brian. I don't know. In Kansas, do you legally have to brand, or are you still an ear tag only state? Well, we're optional. Okay. Um, we do have registered brands, so yeah. and that's a legal mark of ownership okay. here in Kansas. But yeah. there's nothing like a brand committee or brand inspections like there are in some other states. Okay. Well, like I know in some states, like legal ownership is by brand and in Georgia, it's not that way. But, um, I, I've had a lot of people ask me in on TikTok and whatnot, what, you know, will I ever brand my cattle? And I like, I always say like, yeah, I'll probably end up doing cold branding. Um, just Mm -hmm. because I I personally just really like the way a cold brand looks on a red hided animal. The the white hair. Yeah. 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 And, and, so that that's kind of probably the direction I'll go, but I'm also like super particular because I refuse to, I have some really nice cattle um, already, but I refuse to brand anything that I didn't breed and raise. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. I've that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, I'm like, I'm not going to take somebody else's genetics and, that was under yeah. their management and put my brand on it and try to just like say like, hey, look what look what we've got. And because I, I know that happens. And I just refuse to me, that's just like an integrity thing, I guess. I just won't do it. Exactly. And I think that's something that that we need to bring to to the industry mm-hmm. is a lot of transparency and accountability mm-hmm. um, yeah. to our customers. So mm-hmm. let's talk about your customers and your marketing. So how are yeah. you marketing and who are you marketing to? Um, so this is funny because I really, um, do you want to talk about where I'm at now? Or do you want to talk about the, like, the start of the business, like when I, what I set out to do? Because because of COVID, I've had to pivot. And so let's hear the whole story. I want to hear the whole story because, okay. yeah. well, you know, I'll, we've all lived through it. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I started out with the intention of being organic, grass fed, you know, getting grass genetic cattle. And I was going to go from, I was going to be conception to consumption. Um, mm-hmm. and so that was the goal for me. And so I set out and I've since talked to many people who are aspiring ranchers and told them this is absolutely not what they should do. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> the first thing I did is I bought um, the cows that were on the property that we leased because the person that was currently leasing it was looking to get out of it. They were old, wanted to sell. So I was like, well, it's an opportunity. They're pretty good black Angus cows. Like it's not really mm-hmm. what I want, but it's a good foundation, good starting point. And so I did that. Well, if anybody who's in this industry knows, that a cow-calf industry, if you're not going to sell the calves, if you're trying to get to the end consumer, this is the longest possible path for yeah. flow that you can take. Yeah, you're looking at a three-year yeah. time frame. Um, and so I made that mistake. That's what I, first, first mistake I made. Um, but I saw that through. I ended up buying in some steers, uh, some South Pole steers from a, another guy who wasn't too far away and selling some of that beef, marketing my beef. Mainly, I didn't really market my beef that much more than outside the circle of people I knew. So it was mostly just friends, family. Word and, of mouth. Yeah, for friends yeah. and family, word of mouth marketing. I wasn't like posting Facebook ads or any of that kind of jazz. So like in that, in that aspect, the marketing degree did me no good because I was, I, I basically was just like, you know, I, because I have it in, in my uh, mind as just growing slow is sustainable, but I, I, it's crazy as this will sound. And I, I guess TikTok is a justification of this is I know when I like put my mind, my creative juices to, towards like, okay, this, I need to sell this or I need to do this. It can get out of hand quick. Um, so, um, so that is kind of like, I was always reserved to, to market myself because I know I have the ability to over market myself, if that makes sense, to not be able to keep up with the demand I can generate. Um, and so that in that respect, and that's just playing to my strengths is I know I can market it, but I might not be able to get the product to the consumer, which makes a mad consumer. So um, basically like I, I got to a point where right before COVID, I like, I was really, the engine had started really starting to turn over. 
I was mm-hmm. ship and and this was kind of all coincided at one time. It's like my at that point, I think my TikTok account was like at ten thousand people, and I thought like, oh my god, like I have just you know I have more people than I could ever imagine um, to market to. And I had people wanting me to ship them beef in Miami, in New York. And like, I was shipping beef. I wasn't shipping beef like that far. I like, I can take right. myself to kind of a more regional scale, but, um, but I was shipping beef like in the Southeast. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is going to be the year. Like this is 2020 is going to be it. And then like the, basically the moment COVID started to run, um, and they shut down the major packing plants, just the train wreck happened. And so, uh, currently I still don't have any processing dates for this year. None. Oh, wow. Yeah. The processor I have that I was working with, who was fabulous. Uh, I mean, I know people that have been using him like for the remainder of 2021, no (laughs) processing dates. Correct. And so I know people that have been working with my processor for 15 years. They don't wow. have any processing dates. Uh, yeah. it, it's, they What's going up. on? Who's, who bought all the dates? Well, here's the thing, too, is with that model, there's no recourse if I go in and I book up, I want five cows a week. I can book them solid, five cows a week, and if I cancel, I got no skin in the game. There's no deposit. There's no nothing. So, um, so a lot of people did that and then found out that, oh my God, there's all this demand for beef. And they'd go to the sale barn and just get cold cows, haul them oh, up I there see. and sell ground. And they were selling ground beef out of a cold cow for, you know, $10 a pound uh, in the midst of the COVID crisis. But the ripple effects from that, from that shutdown, we're still seeing that. It all, I mean, and that's regional for us. I mean, any processor anywhere close to us has that same backup. Like you are not getting in this year. Um, it's the so, same story here. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I haven't heard any different from anyone, any part of the country. Um, that's part of what led me down the path to like, okay, might want to start my own processing facility, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but I, I have since pivoted um, because I know like with the window of, okay, this year I'm out, there's no processing. So I'm not selling any organic grass fed beef. I've got my freezer here. Like I'm, I'm good. You know, I've got enough beef for me and my family, but Mm -hmm. that's not going to be my revenue stream. And since I have 200 mama cows, that's including my heifers. I was like, well, time to go back to, okay, we can still play in the cow-calf market. Um, And so that's why this year I sold my South Pole bulls. I brought in some Fleckfee Simmental bulls because Mm. I'm going to need bulls that can have calving ease but can produce a nice, healthy, thick calf crop that I can sell to make money. So that's where we're at currently. But I also wanted to... I didn't want to go so far as to say like, okay, I'm going to go get, you know, some, I don't know, you pick any, any breed you want to. I wanted to still stay kind of in the lane of like, okay, I can go to a continental breed, but I still want something that can be forage efficient, 
you know, right. long term, if I say retain some heifers could affect my genetics positively, you know, we could add some ribeye area, maybe, you know, get some of the positive attributes of that without completely going to left field to some crazy feedlot genetic animal. So, right. Okay. I've rambled a while. So you <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> Oh, that was great. And, uh, you know, I, I do kind of want to ask you about your cows and your yeah. genetics and, okay. and, and your thought process behind that. Okay. Um, that I, I have found that Brian to be kind of one of my downfalls is I can get really down that rabbit hole of, of the genetics. Like, I mean, honestly, last night I was looking at, uh, boron, uh, bull, out of South Africa that I'm like, I could import some semen on that bull. Like that, that's the stuff. And I'm like, I have no reason to do that. Like that's, I've got, so I've got enough diversity in my genetics as it is. Um, I'm raising three Mashona bulls right now. Um, I intend to use them probably on my spring cows. Um, and so I'll breed them in the summer. They should be ready by then. Uh, I'm kind of like, you know, you're going to have to save me one of those bull calves out of that Mishona. Let me tell you something about the Mishonas now. Like they have, I have one, one of the cows, I bought five. One of them is a downright beautiful example of efficiency. Uh, she stays, she's like a tank and she stays thick all year round. And her calf, the her that was out of my South Pole bulls is stunning. Like she is gorgeous. And so I've really realized that there's a lot to be had in the hybrid vigor using the Mashona genetics, but you're not going to get it in straight line Mashona. Like if you, all you want is an efficient animal, it's kind of like you running your Coriannis. Like if you want a forage efficient animal, that's going to just perform and put you a decent calf on the ground. That's the way you can stay in that lane. But if you're trying to be more broad like me and go to end consumer, like the carcass isn't really going to work out. <laughs> You're not going to have much of a carcass to sell. So um, that's kind of like something I'm playing with. I'm, I, you know me, like I love South Poles. They're probably, in my opinion, this is just me babbling and looking forward. Uh, I would say like in my mind, the South Pole will always be about 50% of my genetic profile is kind of what okay. I'm looking for. Uh, because I've found them to be a very strong, a maternal efficient cow um they they have their weaknesses though they get they get marketed in a way that is like this cow is the answer to all your problems uh you know if right. you're if you're uh whether you're a commercial cow cow calf producer or whether you're you know growing grass-fed beef this is the only animal you'll ever need and in all mm -hmm. reality well, that, that's the marketing uh, pitch of every bull breeder isn't it and every yeah, association yeah. Um, but I have found that there's a lot of truth to that with the South Pole and there's just a lot of, and it's kind of the same in like the Angus world It's obviously exacerbated in the Angus world. Um, but you found a lot of mom and pop breeders that they just had a bull and that they decided, well, we'll raise that bull calf and we can sell it for, you know, $2,000 or, or whatever, because the market's so hot with South Poles right now. Um, but I find that there's some areas in which the breed not, not, I wouldn't say needs improvement. The breed does what it's advertised to do. Um, but as far as what I need and my consumer's mm -hmm. desire, um, 
there's some ways I think we could improve upon that. And also just on the efficiency side. Um, one of the things that I found that I learned the hard way is uh, being organic is not easy. And you have to have some cows that are very tough to get through that. Um, especially when you're like me and you're young and you look at the whole world as like, oh, I've read these Joel Salatin books. And if I just graze these cows oh, the right work. way, it'll all just fall into place. And the, the ecosystem right? will come bursting forth. And, you know, and that is not, that's not the case in reality. That takes time. And so that is one place where I can say far more than any other breed, the unimproved genetics of an Africaner or like in my case of Mashona cow, mm-hmm. those cows thrive. If you're going to just pull the rug out from under your cows, because that is what I did. I bought my, yeah. my cows and I said, they're organic now. No, no fly control, no, no wormer, no nothing. No. And, and 30% of the dry matter from, from the pasture. Right. And so I can yeah. imagine that being tough. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was a hard, steep learning curve for me and harder for them. Um, so that definitely is difficult. And that is one area where I've realized that the South Pole will exceed over your traditional, yeah. whether it's Angus, you know, Simmental, what, Hereford, whatever, they will exceed better and thrive in that environment more so than those other breeds, your traditional commercial breeds. However, they still pale in comparison to the African breeds. Uh, I, I mean, seriously, as soon as I bought those cows and put them through a summer, a fly season, and right. saw just like, you you have to work hard to make a Mashona get pink eye. And you have to, <laughs> and you have to really, I mean, I don't think you can heat stress them. And right. be, when the when the South Poles head to the shade, after everybody else is already there, the Mashonas still are, out. they're still yeah. out grazing. So <laughs> as far as an ecosystem improving tool, I found them to be very strong. They're a very good candidate, but they still lack in other areas. So right. Um, so I'm kind of trying to create long term. I want to kind of create my own composite, but like I'm not trying to you know, market that. I'm not trying to create my own breed. I just want You're to- You're just matching to your environment. Correct. Your I'm just going right. to use a mishmash of different genetics. With, I mean, I might play with Beefmaster later on. I might play with some Boron later on uh, through AI or something. But for the most part, my goal is to get a really forage efficient animal that is a moderate size. I feel like um, I feel like I'm probably sound like I'm picking on the South Pole breed a little bit, and I guess I kind of am, but I just feel like there's so. Oh, go much- ahead. There's plenty of South Pole fanboys in the world. Yeah. So. Oh, there are, and and there's. I feel like there's so much fluff out there about it that somebody has to kind of speak some truth into <laughs> into the reality of the situation. Um, like they, they're phenomenal animals. It's just not. Um, let's see here. How do I say this without being uh, too politically incorrect? Um, (laughs) They definitely have their weak points. And I would say, 
going back to there being a lot of backyard breeders in that realm, um, if you bought your seed stock from, you know, some even some of the people that are really well known in that world, um, there's a lot of people that will tell you like they need to be 900 pounds full grown. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh, like there, I'm not telling you that's wrong. If you're, if your blinders are on and all you're looking at is environment in the way, yeah. yeah, like yeah. sure. Like there's, that's fine. But some of us out here have to make a living with these cows and just big and, animals make the Packers more money. Small animals make the rancher more money. Yes. And that is true until you get into grass finished beef and you hand okay a, and you hand a customer a steak that's this the ribeye that's this big yeah uh, and they say why did i wait wait how much a pound did i pay for this because i can go to costco right. and get a prime steak for the uh, and i've had that happen to me um, yeah and, oh now normally i would say i tell people well i'm sorry you're just not my customer because you know if you don't see the other benefits to buy yes. from me then like if you're a, if you're comparing me to a costco you're not my customer and that's okay yeah. uh but at the same you point, know and i guess that's a great way to look at it too mike michael yeah i mean absolutely and you have to you have to be able to say no to a lot of people because you i mean you know this in just life you're never going to make everybody happy no and and i've <laughs> It's a lot of people off, even people that were like family friends of mine, uh, just being like, listen, like, you know, if you're unhappy with what you bought from me, you didn't enter into this exchange unknowing of what I was giving you. Like it, right. you chose to buy this for me. If And if you're unhappy with is I was like, does the product taste bad? Is it like, is there any, and like, no, just like steaks are just a little small. And I thought I was going to get more steaks. And I'm like, well, you bought and see how I was packaging my products is I was doing like box orders uh, that were came off. Okay. The so it was like based well, on like box halves, box quarters. I was even going further down did... I was going okay. down, so I had like 25 pound boxes that were just oh. sort of like a I don't know what fraction it was, but it was like uh you know whatever just took the ratio of the cuts that came off the animal and to just keep narrowing it down until you yeah. Get that and so um you know and i sold some of those to some people that were like i just thought i'd get more steaks and <laughs> it's like well uh by ratio you got about 17 percent steaks that come off the animal and that's yeah. what you get in the box so if you buy 25 pounds of beef and you get two ribeyes that's the ratio like i'm i can't you know you're not i'm sorry i can't magically snap my fingers and make a cow that produces 50 percent steaks it just doesn't exist so that that was one thing uh, I had to kind of learn and and shift through. But um, kind of pivoting back to what I was originally going to say is just you know you have to focus on a moderate animal, and and I think that's the key is we've got and and you can find that in almost any breed. There is not one specific breed that just has like the stranglehold on this is. The, the you know the most moderate breed uh, i would say the like original angus genetics that's why they became popular in the first mm -hmm. right uh, yeah. right because they were good they yeah. were good at the time yeah. and you know i i, I don't want to upset any angus people yeah. but there's a lot of other great genetics there 
And mm -hmm. there's a lot to be said about heterosis and hybrid vigor and breeding an animal that is appropriate for your environment. Absolutely. Because let, let's face it, you know, where our last guest was Hobbs Magaray, almost butchered his name. Um, you got it. And, you know, and, he, <laughs> and he's out in Oregon and you're there in Georgia and, you know, I'm kind of in the middle. We're all, yep. all three of us were in vastly different yes. contextual environments mm -hmm. and the same breed of cows mm -hmm. or the same breeding strategy that works for me will work for you. Yeah. And we'll end up with the same kind of cow for our environment. But that doesn't mean that we can trade cows and I can send my cows to okay. Georgia and they'll do great. Correct. You, I could probably send my cows to you and they would go from looking like, oh, those are good cows to like, oh my God, those are nice cows. Uh, because anytime you take an animal from east to west, the improvement in every bite they take from a nutritional standpoint oh, yeah. goes up astronomically. Whereas my forage compared to yours is water. So yeah, right. It's a, like your cows, if you brought them here, now your Coriannis could probably handle it. But if you take an Angus-based genetic cow that's grass only and move them from Kansas to here, you're going to have a cow that you, it goes from looking like a stud, like especially in bulls, you see this a lot. It'll look like a stud there and you move them here. And as soon as summer hits, man, it's just like, why can I see that bull's like, I can see his whole rib cage. <laughs> um, they'll just wither. It, it just happens. But that's that's just adaptation. And so I, I just think there's a balance to be struck if you really are trying to look at the whole of the market, which is kind of the blessing and the curse of where I'm at in my like business strategy is trying to go from conception to consumption um, is you're forced to look at the entirety of the market. Whereas somebody that is say strictly a cow calf operation um, that's regenerative, organic, focusing on improving the environment. And like they, they can do those things and they can have an 800 pound, you know, full grown cow and it's cool. And they can run more of them per acre and that helps their cash, you know, overall the amount of cash they can make. But at the end of the day, somebody like myself who wants to carry it all the way through to the consumer you have to have a vastly different marketing strategy to market that animal's beef than you mm -hmm. would say if I was just raising a modest, not anything huge, but if I say if my mom and my cows were 1200 pounds, full grown, full, full term pregnancy, you know, so let's say just, you know, on the hoof, not, you know, in full term, they're, you know, thousand pounds, 1100 pounds. Like that's a modest animal by the industry standard. Like that's still a fairly small animal. Um, and with that kind of animal though, you can get a carcass that is much more, that makes more pleasing cuts to the end consumer. And so I'm kind of trying to look at all of that and kind of just wade through the misinformation and, the, and you know, cause there's a lot of it out there on, honestly, on both sides. I've seen it. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. I, I was going to, I actually wanted to talk to you about this, Brian, because I'm, I've kind of become a little jaded um, towards the whole like regenerative ag movement in, a, in some ways, not, I mean, I'm still totally on board with the practice. It's just, um, I guess you would say I'm just kind of weighed down by the, all the BS um, that's out there. Cause there's, 
it's just a lot. <laughs> and I feel like we we both – and honestly, I'm calling Hobbs out a little bit on this. I love him to death. Uh, but I've actually kind of had some, some text conversations with him about – like he gets a lot of flack by your standard – you know, your run-of-the-mill commodity guys. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas his like his practice is so refined and so sharp and like he's got it between his ears like he's got it it's but the message gets totally lost in translation because and this I guess goes back to the fact that the root of my degree is in communication it's like mm-hmm. um, so sometimes like you have to tone down your rhetoric i guess you would say or dumb it okay. or whatever, to, yeah. to make it to make an effective communication line between you and somebody else because i feel like there's so many conventional producers out there that could so easily be convinced to do what yeah. we do it's just we they have been so they feel like they've been ostracized or put down by us because when we say tell people that grass-fed beef's more healthy you know, grain yeah. finishing, you know, has all kinds of issues and, you know, feedlots are terrible and blah, blah, blah. They're like, well, why are you putting us down? And I, I mean, I'm just as guilty. I've, I've done it. I've talked down about it plenty. Um, and uh, there's two sides to that argument, too. I mean, obviously, I, I think there's a difference between talking down and calling attention to some of these production practices without trying to vilify anybody. And that's a very difficult thing to do to get somebody to think about a practice that they've been doing. I'm doing it this way because this is how granddaddy did it. And my guy worked for him and it's going to work for me. And, Mm -hmm. And just getting them to a mindset where they can challenge that paradigm Yes. Right. You know, it's well, very I, difficult without them feeling that they're being attacked. Yeah. I well, do feel. I, go oh, ahead. Sorry. I, well, I feel like that goes back to the you have a lot of knowledge or you have a lot of experience. And it's yeah. really good to have both of those. And it's these ranchers, they have a lot of experience, but are they still lifelong learners? Are they trying to improve what they're doing? Um, and it's funny that you say that about, you know, the word regenerative ag. I thought that way when organics first started becoming popular and I was like, yeah. oh, I buy this organic milk because I know it doesn't have antibiotics in it. And I was yeah. like, that's ridiculous. Like yeah. traditional milk doesn't have antibiotics either. Right. It's just a Correct. lack of knowledge. It's, it's, there's so much greenwashing that happens on the marketing end of things. Uh, this is why I tell people like, just don't trust labels, period. And that's why I love, yeah. I love, I love what you always say, Brian, it's like, you need to shape the hand that feeds you. Um, yeah, because I like that's been my mantra forever. So I just say you need, you know, know your farmer. You need to know your farmer. Like uh, uh, farmers and ranchers, like are uh, notorious for being people that um, like to be isolated, and uh, as as jovial and uh, I don't know what other words I would use. Uh, communicative, I guess, is as may seem. Um, on my TikTok videos or whatever, like I'm actually kind of okay with just being alone most of the time. Uh, and, and that's just kind you of- on the cows, right? Yeah, like, I mean, you gotta think, okay, if I post six videos a day, that's, how, that's a lot, but 
that's six minutes of my life. Yeah, that's true. There's a, there's a lot of other hours that I'm spending pretty much in isolation. Um, and, and so I found that to be a nice balance. But um, anyway, I didn't mean to divert. I just wanted to say like, there's, when I say regenerative ag, I guess I have to also like deconstruct my own mind because I feel like there's so many people that don't even know what regenerative ag even is or means. And, and, but to me, it's just like common vernacular. It's just like, okay. I mean, who doesn't know about regenerative ag? You know, it's, it's kind of like the organic. um, Yeah. It kind of means the same thing to me as what organic means to most people. In fact, I don't know. It's, it's, one of those things, I guess I, I, what I'm trying, the root of what I'm trying to say is I just feel like there has to be somebody, and I'm not saying it's me, that can create some common ground between, and I, I do feel like Gabe Brown does a really good job of that for the most part, um, because he's been on both sides of that aisle. Um, when it comes to trying to take the blinders off of people that are in the conventional ag space, um, to the problems that exist there. But there's also, for every one of those, there is a whole lot of people um, that, I'll just call them uh, prophets of regenerative ag. The, you know, like Joel Salatin is one who, like, I, I love Joel Salatin, but he is notorious in for having an, uh, unless he's talking about the government, he's notorious yeah. about having <laughs> an, uh, an upbeat um, outlook on ag that is good for convincing young people to try it, to do it, mm-hmm. but kind of paints a rosy picture of all the possibilities and without kind of giving enough warning of like, okay, but you probably shouldn't just go out and mortgage a hundred hundred acre farm because you can make all kinds of money doing this you know, cause you read one book. Um, so right. that anyway, that's kind of where I'm at now. I, I've just seen so many people, especially I guess in the homesteading community that have fallen prey to that. Um, that that's what I'm trying to, I guess in my mind anyway, this is a conversation that I have inside my own head is how, like, okay, how do we overcome that? Like, how do we bring truth or shine some light into like, okay, no, like in this way, the conventional guys aren't completely like evil or, you know, the right. are wrong or whatever. Like just because somebody doesn't do exactly, like, there's so much dogma. Like that's, I guess, what yeah. I'm in, in the regenerative ag space. And Hobbes is really good at flaunting the dogma of, of you, know, you know, but he did miss bust it. He didn't miss bust it when we talked to him recently. And he was like, I'm not anti-conventional or, you know, yeah. anti-green. So mm-hmm. I think he did talk about that really well, where he was like, he doesn't want everyone to think that. Yeah. And, and that's, I've called and, him out on that. I'd like to throw the term contextually appropriate management yeah. out. Because, yeah. you know, we can, we can agree that, you know, you're regenerative, I'm regenerative, and there's other regenerative people in the world. And that means something different in Chickamauga, Georgia, as it does in Barbara County, Kansas. And we're both Absolutely. applying contextually appropriate holistic management principles to achieve those regenerative goals. And I think that's the important part. And 
you know, if we're talking about the definition of regenerative, I think one thing that people really need to be thinking about is it's not regenerative if you don't know who you're passing it on to. Yeah. That's and I think there's a lot of us, I think there's a lot of us that will call ourselves regenerative mm-hmm. and not be able to answer that question. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that's a challenge. I think that's a little bit of a challenge, a little gauntlet throwdown for everybody. Um, and it's something that, that we as an industry need to work on is how do we promote succession mm-hmm. and give some of these younger people some opportunity to get into livestock and, and animal husbandry and the production of protein. Definitely. Absolutely. Because that, that to me, I mean, you know, Rancher Bren on TikTok. Um, I don't know if you ever intend to have him on here or not, but uh, uh, figured you probably. Yeah, yeah we're going to have him on here. Yeah. Um, well, Isaac and me have, like, I actually just did helped him. I haven't got actually talked through, through it with him yet, um, but he's been asking me a lot of questions and I kind of got on Google earth and kind of designed his farm for him that he just bought. Like, okay. Like if I was going to, if I had this place, this is probably without setting boots on the ground, this is probably, you know, where I'd probably put some more fencing. This is probably where I put some water points like uh, to mm-hmm. help more efficiently. Um, I, I think that is the future. Like we have to, because there's a lot of people like him out there who I, I was once him, like not that long right. ago. Uh, and it's to me that is going to be the succession of change that I think we see the most because as we said at the beginning of this there are so many farmers that are 65 plus Mm -hmm. in my opinion uh, not to throw too much shade on people but like in my opinion have already proven that that the succession plan really isn't their priority um that I feel like that burdens us further, like the younger people who have already gotten into it to like, okay, well, they dropped the ball. Let's see what we can do, you know, like um, to at least attempt to help the people who are, you know, 10 years behind us or five years behind us, whatever it may be, um, try to be that instead of constantly looking back towards the older generation, like, well, why didn't you do anything? You know, why? it's like, well, I'm in it. You know, why can't, why can't I take some time to help somebody that's new at it? So um, circling back a little bit though, Brian, I was just going to finish this thought that was in, living in the back of my head um, is I think what I'm wanting to see in the next 10 years is not so much because I still think there'll be a lot of older farmers that cling are bitter clingers, you know, that just hang on, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, everybody talks about like this exchange that's going to happen that all this farm right. transferred. Um, I think that may actually last a, a, be a longer span of time that that takes than what some people say. Um, but either way, I would just much rather see conventional people that, I mean, there's so, especially around me. I don't know if it's the same where you're at. There are so many people around here that are set stock that do no rotation, none. Um, I would much rather see somebody that's conventional, has been conventional for 30 years, say, huh, you feed a lot less hay than me. Because I've had conversations standing down at the co-op before with other farmers and tell them like, yeah, I didn't feed any hay last year. Oh, yeah, but you've got 400 acres. That's, you know, that's you. it's because you got all that land. 
because around me, that's a big spread. Yeah, uh, it is. I'm, right. Yeah. You know, where y'all at, it's like, oh, that's a. That's nothing. Yeah. But around me, you have a pasture that size. Yeah. Exactly. Go to a couple hundred miles west, and that's not even a gathering trap. Correct. That's just like, that's a holding pen. But, you know, where in my area, and that goes back to what you were saying, Brian, about, you know, contextual management. Like, it, it, it's very different. But to talk to those old timers and be like, yeah, I didn't feed any hay last year. And, like, they want to come up with an excuse as to why you were able to do it that's outside the realms of your management practice. Yeah. I would much rather right. convince those guys who are set stocking and feeding hay six months out of the year in an environment that gets 50 plus inches of rain. Uh, yeah to rotate their animals every week hell every month yeah. just you know something just just get a, right. get a four block going do something is better than nothing because it plants the seed of oh that that's working well what if we do what if we push that a little further and because i'm i'm also kind of reminded when i think about that um it, my agriculture teacher in high school telling me about the development of the land grant university and the extension service and talking about how when the extension agent because the university of georgia was the first land grant college um oh, I didn't know and, that. yeah and so they were the first to like really go out into the community and try to sell if you will the ideas of what they had researched and so she, i remember her telling a story about you know, when they first set out with the extension agents to go convince these old time farmers that were growing corn on, you know, 36 or 48 inch centers of rows, like, hey, you can bring that down to 16 inches or 30 inches or whatever it was at the time um, and grow just as much corn plus the extra. Uh, that what they had to do is they had to get creative because they were basically getting run off people's land. So this is the way we've always done it. This is the way, you know, my dad and his dad taught him and screw you. And, and they, what they had to do was look at those people is look to the younger generation and say, right. okay, well, your son who's 12, what if you gave him half an acre and just let, and he follows our plan and you do the rest. How, how you're used to doing it. Could you give that up to let him try it and say yes. And, and then when he yields more than daddy did, daddy goes, yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Um, and so that's where I see us um, is the younger people, the people that are, you know, I, I, I would say younger than 40 or you know, around that, that gauge is like the younger people in ag. Mm -hmm. um, it's our job to kind of shine that light forward. But, you know, kind of looking back at what I already said is we can't leave people in the dust like we've been left. Yeah. And I think I've really realized in the last couple of years that I'm no longer on that younger side of agriculture, <laughs> that I've kind of belonged to the older yes, side you now. are. Nah, nah. You're, listen, man, you're on TikTok. You, you can't tell me that you don't belong in the younger crowd. I'm not even on TikTok, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, young at heart. Well, we'll have to work on your social media handles and, yeah. you know, we'll, you'll, you'll, we'll have to talk about if you really want to do that or not. Yeah, it's, it's a dark. And if you dark want, I, I'm more than happy to help you. I don't want to join we'll the dark side. 
just stay off Twitter. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Avoid that. Uh, so that's so, so funny. Michael... Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, CK. Sorry. I was going to say, I remember talking to this rancher. Um, I think he was in South Carolina and he was talking about how he has like rolling hills and a bunch of like brush issues. I'm like, yeah, well, like maybe you can just rinse a, some goats for a month or so and get rid of that brush if that's what you want to do. And he was like, I couldn't imagine my neighbors seeing me with goats on my ranch and just oh. like being so ashamed of the thought or the notion of offen- the offensive neighbors. Yeah. And um, I was like, okay, well, maybe you're not a good fit for me because I, I don't know how to work with you if you're not willing to, if you're just worried about what your ranch or your neighbors are going to think. So I think it is kind of crazy that people won't do things just because it's tradition or it's what are my neighbors going to think when they see I have goats here? It's like, I'm getting rid of this brush and I'm going to be able to grow forage that my cows can eat. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well- I'll, I'll second the the other option would have been to take the uh, bovines and feed some hay and oh yeah crazy high stock densities because I've had people do that with their thistle and stuff just trample it yeah. down yeah that's yeah, good it's it's pretty it's pretty rough I've I've made my cows eat like a paddock of nothing but bardock and thistles and they yeah. weren't happy about it but they did it <laughs> they did it yeah I, my coriander I oh. I turned them into a fresh paddock and I had this little six foot tall willow tree in it. I turned them into a fresh paddock and you know, there's a bunch of them that fanned out to go get the good grass. And there were three of them that beelined for that willow tree. And in just a few minutes, they had it stripped of green. And I came back the next day and it was like, it was a willow shrub. Wow. They took down the stem and everything. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're good foragers. Yeah. So, Let's talk grazing for a little bit. Let's talk sure. about how you graze and why and, and where you learned your grazing philosophy. Okay. Well, I basically, my grazing philosophy is a, a mutt of where I learned it. Um, it's all kind of been just piecing together, much like my entire life philosophy. It's just piecing together the best things I can pluck from uh, people that I respect. And um, I've, I think that's really all we can do. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best we can all do. Um, so as far as like how I graze, you know, like it, I literally get inundated with the question all the time. It drives me insane. Um, you know, well, how, how long is it going to be before they come back there? Or how big's the area they're in? And I'm like, well, that's like, it's not this like uniform like squares that like everything's the same all the time of like, that's just rotational grazing or can be, um, you know, like for me, I, I have figured out the hard way that right this time of year, I have to graze at a much lower density. Um, Mm -hmm. because if I don't, I will destroy my ground. I get lots of pug. We are on clay soils like that. And so this is our wet season, like by Mm -hmm. far. Um, And thankfully, knock on wood, uh, it hasn't been that bad. But last year was a fairly mild winter. The winter before that was record-breaking in rainfall. And I basically discarrowed with hooves a lot of ground um and 
And the thing about doing that is that's all well and good from a disturbance animal impact standpoint if you give that ground appropriate rest time. The problem is when you do that on clay soils, the appropriate rest time is probably in the neighborhood of three to four years. Um, oh, wow. Because, because you create a hard pan. Right. The dry season the is. Clay. Uh, so like it's kind of it almost works in reverse of the way you hear Alan Savory talk about you know defeating desertification in dry environments. Uh, well, if, I want to jump in here because yeah. I had a similar experience this year um, at at high stock densities, and for me that was pushing about forty forty two thousand pounds an acre, okay. and my soils are sandy loam. And the particular area that, that I'm going to talk about um, was farmed from probably sometime in the early 1900s till about mid-1950s. I think it went back to grass in the, in the 1950s. Okay. So it, it was subject to a lot of wind, water erosion, a lot of topsoil's gone off. I mean, the, there's a little draw that's, that's super productive. Uh, mm -hmm. The uplands are not so great. Yeah. Well, we ran a hot wire through this this hundred acre trap and mm -hmm. we had a lane down to our strip grazing because that's that's what we made work yeah and this was kind of the end of may right when my warm season grass is getting started right when it's starting to wake up and we had like an inch and a half of rain and then a cool day then we had another inch and a half of rain so i had three paddocks and this this 12 foot wide lane for 500 yards that so was just pugged up and totally destroyed yeah and i'm i'm thinking man, this is going to be trashed. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. This is like an acre and a half on a 7,000 acre ranch. It'll bust, yeah. right? It'll be okay. <laughs> so I went back, I went back like at the beginning of June and it still looked like, you know, it just looked hammered. Like, okay, yeah. whatever. And we were grazing other parts of the ranch and it was July. It was the end of July before I went back there. And I got back there in the end of July and there were seven foot tall big blue stem. Mm -hmm. right right through the middle of that lane so again this is one of those contextually appropriate things when people talk about you know pugging and compaction that means something very different if you're in a heavy clay soil or if you're in a sandy loam soil absolutely right. that's that's that kind of story infuriates me to be honest because the fact that i cannot do that and replicate that makes me so mad um because i well you could run 200 cows on 400 acres i wish well, i could do that i was also gonna say you know when you told me that a uh, high stock density for you is forty-two thousand pounds i'm like that's my like average all the time like I, I don't, all year round that's right? probably your winter rate right yeah yeah, yeah. Like, right now i'm running probably i'm probably not that high right now i'm probably at like twenty thousand pounds um because I really have to scale back um, in the winter time. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, during the growing season, I, I definitely exceed 42,000 pounds, uh, but I'm not, I don't run half a million pounds uh, all the time, like, like I probably should. Um, but I, I would definitely say like, it's just one of those things where context really comes into focus um, when it, cause I've gone to like, Greg Judy's grazing school. I've gone, right. you know, I've taken uh, the real wealth ranching course. I've, you know, I've had Jim Garish come to my farm and, or my, and see, that's another thing. See here in the Southeast, it's a farm. It's a farm. It's, oh, a okay, farm. It farm. it's not a, 
when you tell people like, oh, it's a ranch, they're like, they think you're being pretentious. Uh, I was corrected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm from the West and they're like, if you're on the East Coast, you call it farm, PK. Yeah. You know, West it's, of the Everything's a farm. Like if, yeah. you call it, if you call it a ranch, like it's okay, but like to other farmers who are all cattle, yeah. uh, it's like they, they don't like that term. It's like, well, it's a farm. Um, and I'm like, yeah, the last time this was actually a farm was probably the last cotton crop they pulled off of it in the early 1900s. Um, and that's, that's another contextual thing is like our topsoil layer here is so thin that yeah. that adds to the pugging aspect and the issues we run into. So like I always tell people, we aren't really farming topsoil at this point. Like we're, a, we're effectively growing on a subsoil layer and trying to make the best of it uh because building most that our, top yeah most of our topsoil is long gone it sailed down the creeks and the rivers you know eons ago because i mean my my opera or my ranch it has been an in operation since i know 1857 uh and it was a cotton operation then they were plowing it with mules for cotton um, mm -hmm. so and that's because there's a lot of history in our area civil war uh, battle major civil war battle was fought here and so there's actually some fairly good records of what was going on at the time and it's it's so different um, but when i see the kinds of improvements that can be made in drier environments from animal impact I, I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. There is a part of me that's like, dang, I'm just going to move to Wyoming because it's just like, you know, like the, the possibilities is like you could just give me some dry desert land in New Mexico or like Utah or something. It's like what I could do with the animals I have now. Um, well, obviously not those genetics. I would need different genetics, but, um, you know, the, the volume. You buy some of mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I think the Michonas could probably take it, but they're more tropical than they are desert. So um, might have to look into getting some semen from that boron bull. That's uh, <laughs> there's definitely a case to be made though for uh, I, for me. One of the long term plans I have is going to a far denser silvopasture system um, because in my context and I. I think silvopasture or the savanna system works mo in most places. It just looks a little different. Um, obviously where you are, Brian, like I know the cedar tree is the scourge of your existence. Yeah. Um, the scourge of the prairie. Yeah, we, we have them here too. Uh, every fence line I own has cedar trees growing in it. Um, so I know how that goes, but they're not quite as invasive to us because they're native than they are to you. Um, however, like that, that, the cedar tree is not a silvopasture tree. You know, it's a no. kill everything under it tree. And whereas like there are trees that when you, the only place I feel like silvopasture doesn't really work is the prairie. The prairie didn't develop as a woodland ecosystem in any context, as far as I'm aware. Um, however, like, our environment definitely would have been heavily wooded um, with thick undergrowth. 
And so that's kind of where I'm focusing my efforts towards the future. Um, I definitely would like to see a lot. I, I know if you're familiar with white oak pastures. Yeah. Um, there. So I actually remember the Will Harris fan club. Uh, oh yeah. I can. Uh, I want to be I, like Will Harris when I grow up. Well, uh, Mr. Harris offered me a job before I actually started uh, doing this. Uh, I went down there to uh, me and my wife went to a soil health like conference thing they put on there, and I got to talking with him and uh, and he was like, "You want to come work for me?" <laughs> I was like, "Sure." And the only reason I I did it is because I could not find a place to live down there. But okay, uh, but White Oak Pastures is essentially so we're on the same highway highway 27 um runs down the spine of west georgia and so they are we are on polar opposite ends of the state and their context is obviously a little different than mine um and i, I just lost my train of thought of why i even brought them up in the first place we were talking about savannah and yes thank you yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry i saw a squirrel um <laughs> Like at the well, time, <laughs> they had just planted like an ungodly amount of trees. They planted like thousands of pecan trees on an okay. 80 by, on an eighty by eighty grid, um, and that contextually for them is probably pretty accurate. I think I probably in my environment would probably stretch that a little bit more because being a further north um, latitude, I'd probably be looking at. 100 to 150 foot spacing on trees um but that's kind of where my mind's at in the future because i definitely i've looked at like nut crop trees and things like that there's a lot of people out there i know like mark shepherd um, um he talks about that a lot you know doing all kinds of crazy contour growing of fruit trees and nut trees and grazing pigs and then cows and not, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm all about some of that, but I think sometimes this is going to sound so punny, uh, but sometimes you can lose it side of the forest for the trees. Um, yeah. With in the regenerative ag space, I feel like there's so many things, so many rabbits to trace and, and run down that like I've told some of my family members, like I have a list of things I want to try that's so long and so daunting that no one man could do it in, in six lifetimes. I'm like, I, I will eventually have to bring on people to be like, okay, I task you with, this is your enterprise. And, and that's kind of what yeah. Salatin's done. And um, I, I see that as being the model that grows that our space um, is that that's where we grow outwards is by bringing people in to further all the different causes that are all in association with, you know, the reconstruction of our entire ecosystem. Yeah. And someday, you know, I, I hope we can see some of the large scale changes that we've been talking about. Yeah. So what's one thing people can do right now to start making the world a better place? What's a simple change people could start doing today? I would say, um, meatless Mondays. <laughs> like, I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> kidding. Definitely I'm kidding. kidding. Uh, <laughs> eat, I would say, uh, double your meat portion on Monday. And uh, honestly, in all honesty, um, I would say 
seek out somebody that yeah. is local to you. Um, of course, I'm a huge fan of, of true, you know, biodynamic, organics, regenerative ag, but some people don't have access to that. Like start with where you are. If you have, if you live in the corn belt of Iowa and you've got somebody that is right down the road that's, you know, maybe lot grain finishing some steers for the last 30 days and your family needs beef, talk to that guy. Consider, consider buying something from him. Because if we don't, I, I'm, I'm trying to rehone my own mind to get out of the box of the marketing gimmicks and everything that gets sold to you when you walk into a Whole Foods of, all, of everything great that's happening for the environment on this box that you know nothing about, <laughs> as opposed to knowing somebody that's boots on the ground and keeping your your dollars patronizing with your local, yeah. local agriculture. Because let's be honest, if if ag continues down the road that it's on, and it was is far already far down the road, what we've of, done in the last of, year, of yeah, shipping, shipping everything we produce to somebody we don't know. Um, if we continue down that road, the economic impact of that leads to agricultural destruction, or that leads us to uh, the ability for big corporate buyouts to come in, and they don't need you to run this operation, uh, especially when you're talking about row crop production. I mean, there the technology is already in production or exists to virtually eliminate all human hands from row crop production. Uh, that's just I, I think we may see if they push hard enough, we'll see humans removed from the, in, the industrial commodity feedlot model yeah. as much as possible. Absolutely. I we're, think they'll that, never, it, that, it's going to be a hard push to get the human beings out of the cow calf business. Yes. But at, there's a well, point where everybody in the cow calf business either sells to the beef business or becomes part of the beef business. And I think there's integrate themselves very. Mm-hmm very radical changes coming to the beef business. I, I would absolutely agree to that. I think there are huge pushes in our industry, um, whether you be commodity-based or regenerative or somewhere in between, uh, to essentially take us down the same road that they took dairy down and that they took right. poultry down, um, is yep. to, commod- to make the commodity out of the individual uh, which Hobbes has touched on that before I know, um, and, and essentially make you a cog in the wheel more so than we already are um, and eliminate their liabilities, which is, let's be honest, is just good business, but it's really crappy for all the snowball effects that come out of that. Um, it may look good in a corporate boardroom uh, when you're looking at the bottom line, but the effects on public health, on psychological health, on, mm-hmm. you know, on, and then on the actual economic impacts of essentially federalizing all the, the economy of ag instead of keeping it localized. I mean, if you just look, go through rural Georgia here, and I know it's pretty much the same anywhere you go that's farm country, the towns are dead. There's nothing there. People have left. There's but old, who's doing? Go ahead. But who's doing good in those towns? 
the implement dealer, the seed dealer, and the crop insurance salesman. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely, because they, they have all convinced or sold to all these people that are losing money at the end of the year every year. And most of which would, this is one thing that I I feel like really ruffles feathers, but it's absolutely true. And it's a hill I'll die on. And me and Hobbs are both Mm -hmm. on it is, and I know you're on it too, Brian. So uh, is without the ripping away of tax dollars from citizens and redistributing it towards commodity food production, the whole system falls apart. No, absolutely. There, there is no, there's no, or hardly at all. I'm sure some exist. I'm sure there's a few out there, but for the most part, by and large, there are no row crop production uh, farmers in the commodity industry that produce at a profit without government assistance. And I, I will join you shoulder to shoulder on that hill. Yes. And, and, but and what we'll a scary thought, though. What a scary thought, though, right now. Absolutely. Without that assistance, they will fall apart. If, yeah. you, and so if you don't you realize that, that, how scary. Well, it's like I even had people um, that I'm friends with, local guys who are in the cattle uh, business, who were telling me in the midst of COVID, like how much money I could get from the government for, yeah. you know, for just for having my cat. Assistance or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and, I was like, I, I don't under, it's almost like it does not compute to me because I'm like, I, I don't need the government's money. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm okay. And you don't know what the ripple effects are downstream from that. Um, yeah, I'm, this is one thing I do not get political at all um, on my social media platforms. I steer away from it heavily unless you're friends with my personal page. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great policy. Absolutely. I, I mean, I just feel like there's, there are two, there's too much volatility on whatever side of the spectrum you choose. Um, right. And, and so I try to steer clear of that for the most part. Um, but the, but the fact of the matter is we are in an industry that is essentially an extension of the government. Uh, it has become one at largely because there are so many controls in place and there's so, like I said, it's propped up because the industrial model, I'm, and when I say us, I mean, we are, you know, cattle producers, ergo, we are attached to this, but obviously we know we aren't, uh, we're different, but we're not the, beholden to that system. Correct. But the industrial food model falls apart completely without government oversight and funding. And that's where they get all their legitimacy is so they, they're profitable because of the government and their legitimacy comes in the form of certifications and oversight. Oh, it's USDA, you know, inspected. It's great. Okay. It came from Nigeria, you know, and people don't even realize, um, you know, all the loopholes and the things that exist. So I, I really think, um, just going back to plant my flag in what you asked, Brian, is, is definitely my, my thing. One, people, one thing people can do is make one small purchase from a local producer. And I don't care if it's a, you know, canned, you know, canned tomatoes or a jam from a grandma that grows a big garden or if it's, 
you know, buying a whole beef to put in your freezer from a local uh, cattleman. It, we have to repatronize local agriculture um, because local agriculture is far more apt to change and be nimble um, to the demands of the consumer and, and is not beholden to the big behemoth of the industry and federal dollars. So uh, that's, that's how And, I and when you're buying food at a farmer's market, not from a corporate chain, when you're going to that farmer's market and you're talking to that farmer, that rancher, or the employee that works for them, they have a vested interest in selling you good, clean, healthy food. You yes. know, they are accountable mm -hmm. to you in person right there at the yeah. farmer's market for the Absolutely. product they're selling you. Absolutely. And, and that's something that's, that's totally missing mm -hmm. in, the, in the rest of the, in the industrialized agriculture sector. Yes. It, it, I mean, you are at, at best, at absolute best, you are four hands removed from, and I'm talking yeah. in the beef in the beef model. Of course, with right. production models, it could be vastly different. But you're at least four hands removed, and in all likelihood, probably more like six to eight um, hands removed from the guy that actually saw that calf hit the ground. To thanks for shopping with us, <laughs> you know, uh, and and that is something I think. Um, I think the internet stands to disrupt that a little bit. There's a lot of people who, uh, you know, some companies have gotten pretty big now. I, I've railed on ButcherBox before um, because just up until, as far as I'm aware, like last year, they were sourcing the majority of their beef from Australia. Um, selling it in the U.S. is, you know, they didn't falsely advertise. They advertised it as grass-fed, grass-finished beef. It's what it was. They just left just out the, where yeah, convenient portion over here. Sidebar, uh, you know, is we didn't we didn't even grow this in the country you live in. We grew it halfway around the world. Um, that it, is, it just blows my mind that people can think can can be brainwashed into believing hmm. that that's better when it has all that that carbon cost for the transportation. I mean, because disregard production methods. Yeah, I mean, just transporting meat halfway across the world really doesn't make any sense. It, well, it's bathed in diesel fuel, and to me, once again, that goes back to, you know, if we talk about the socioeconomic impact, it's, well, we live in an era of cheap oil and yeah. you know, subsidized oil, essentially, whether it be through tax breaks or God knows what else. Like, there's the whole so that that's what like it's a deep deep dark rabbit hole but like when you really dive into just how uh how much the tentacles of where tax dollars go um and not only tax dollars debt dollars um you know go to prop things up um it it's fascinating to me that we have made it this far to be honest, um, because without some sort of, I mean, you would have thought that in, um, what was it under Jimmy Carter when they had the, uh, oil embargo, like if that happened today, we're done. Like the whole yeah. system collapses. Um, and, and so we have the to supply chain disruptions. We've, we saw in March and April 
would be like a love tap. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I remember going to, uh, and I just had to, I went to Walmart, uh, in, it was probably in mm-hmm. April. Um, I was like, I, I want to, so I went to our, you know, local Walmart in the next town over. I was like, I, I'm just going to go see, I'm going to go see what's there. Walked immediately walked to the meat department and all that was there was beef jerky and Lunchables. Oh yeah. And that was it. Uh, yeah. And, and, and tofu and vegan stuff, right? Yeah, of course. But honestly, <laughs> my wife, we, you know, we went to uh, Whole Foods and later on, which there is a Whole Foods not terribly far from us. We have to go to Chattanooga to, to go to it. But there was plenty of food in Whole Foods. Like, because the difference is people that are of our mindset, you know, that buy healthy food and whatnot, like they weren't rushing to like, oh God, we got to clean the shelves. Um, that, that stuff still exists. Um, and honestly, even walking through the Walmart, most stuff that had a USDA organic stamp on it was still there. And mm-hmm. that, that goes to show, and, and now not beef, um, because they don't even have that uh, largely right. where we live, but, but a lot of other, especially prepackaged foods, things like that. And, and so that was a very eye-opening thing for me, uh, both in understanding the community in which I reside and right. who is act like where the need actually is, because if you're faced with, you know, the, the idea of like, okay, my family needs to eat and there's no food or I can spend a little more and get something that's basically the same as what I was going to buy, but organic. And you choose, well, we'll go to, uh, you know, the McDonald's or whatever and get some McNuggets instead. Like, that tells you a lot about your community. Um, and yeah. so, you know, if we're ever going to change as a whole, we have to focus on that. And so, like, that's why part of my drive in trying to uh, open a processing facility is to hopefully get to a production standard one day where we can start working with those who are underserved and kids that, yeah. are, you know, there's so many kids that are, in my county that are on, you know, free and reduced lunch at school. And mm-hmm. you know, there's all these statistics that show that that may be the only meal they get in the day. Um, there's, there's a lot of avenues I think we could chase with that with on the charitable side from a regenerative ag standpoint that I think, um, I don't know. I don't I feel like we don't explore that enough. Um, and that's something I've just recently started doing. So there's some there's some folks around here that are doing that. I think uh, over the last school year, there have been several ranches that have donated halves yeah. um, to the school system. Awesome. Um, they just take the animal in and and pay the processing fee, or the processing fee is donated. Then they go down to the locker, pick the meat up, and they take it to the school. That's awesome. And it's it's been a really positive experience for the guys that have done it, and yeah. for the kids too, because it attaches a story to yeah. their food. And, you know, like it's overall theme, you know, we've been talking about it. shake the hand that feeds, you know, the face yeah. of your farmer, you know, understand your supply chain and how that food shows up at the grocery store. If you want to choose to support that model, you know, yeah. after you learn, you know, how many middlemen are taking profit out between you and your farmer. Yeah, I definitely think that that's something we need to work towards, too, in just as far as growing the next generation 
of agrarians, if you will, um, I think we need to start putting that a heavier focus of agriculture in our education system. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't mean to derail anything. Uh, I just kind of wanted to bring that up because I, I definitely think I know for me, if I had not had the agricultural education I had in high school, I may have not had a stable enough foundation to be where I am today. I may have not, like, I may have not had that uh, little burning ember in me blown on right. to, to, you know, to strike fire. So I definitely think that there's something to be said for that. And the more I think we can get kids hands in the dirt, um, I think we see infinite possibilities come out of that. Um, both, like I said before, from a psychological perspective, from a health perspective, uh, mm -hmm. and from a perspective. I, I, I definitely think that goes, I guess that's the next step further down the chain as far as looking back from where we are now, is looking down the line and saying, okay, it's about the next generation, but there's a, it's also about the next. Like, let's not, the, let's not forget the littles, you know, and, and teach them. Um, you know, there's going to have to be some crossover there. So um, we have to build a know. culture of passing this, of building and passing this knowledge down. Absolutely. And that goes back to what you said, CK, about, you know, so many ranchers are like, and farmers are not lifelong learners. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's because we kind of have a society that I won't say shies away from that, but you're not really encouraged or a vast majority of people aren't encouraged to be lifelong learners. Right. You're, you're encouraged to, you know, get, do this, be quiet and, you know, and know your place and do your job yeah. and that, and fit your little, you know, space, your little block in society. And that's where you need to be. And I think Brian's fixing to like, he's laughing right laughing. there. <laughs> uh, but that, that's, uh. that's where, we're forced and instead of, and I, I'm not totally on board with the whole full fledged, like hippie commune, uh, you know, yeah. you know, free, totally free society kind of, you know, whatever. But, um, I think there's definitely something to be said for allowing kids to express themselves through the process of agriculture, because I think, it, it, at its core, it is connecting with nature and connecting with what makes us human um, in our experience here on this rock surrounding, you know, orbiting around this ball of fusion. Uh, so that that to me is is vastly important that we um, we work towards getting kids hands in the dirt. So anyway, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll leave that. At, well, we can get off the education train. No, it, it's been great. And, you know, we've been going for quite a while and yeah. let's look, we're kind of, kind of closing in on the end here. We've got, okay. uh, man, we've covered a lot of stuff and I know <laughs> we're going to have to have you back to cover some more of these things. So let's turn the tables real quick. It's okay. your shot. You can ask us a question or ask me a question. Okay. Um, well, CK, I don't know you like at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going to, you, you say you're in Kansas as well. I'm in Kansas right now. Um, my husband's from Idaho, and I'm actually from California, but he's okay. finishing out his vet degree here. So, 
Yes. Okay. Where do you, where do you plan to uh, potentially? We're going to go back to Idaho um, just because it's not looking real fun going back to California at, at the time uh, yeah, if, when I, you want to start a business. I yeah. wouldn't rain there. Um, I would say <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> what, what part of Idaho? So it's uh, Wendell, Idaho, Gooding County. It's uh, like 30 minutes from Twin Falls. Okay. Hour and a half south of Boise. Also, I use all okay. those terms. South of Boise, so yeah. it's dry, dry country. Yeah, it's, it's sagebrush country, and actually, a lot of dairies are there too. We're in the valley, so we have more of a mild temperature than like somewhere in Stanley or or something that has a higher elevation. Yeah, yeah. You'll, have, you'll have to go uh, visit Alder Springs. And yeah, that's what everyone keeps telling me. I've been invited to his ranch a couple times, so I'm going to take it up next time when we move there. Yeah, they're, they're I, I actually texted Glenn today and, yeah. and asked if he'd be interested in coming on the show. I haven't heard back from him yet. And I, okay. I hope that by the time this airs, I'll have an answer from him. Okay. Get him a nudge. They're, they're cool people. Um, they've got some cool things going on. But uh, I was actually told by Jim Garrish at one point when he was here that um, they were voted. I can't remember who he said by, but they were voted the best stake in the world by somebody. This was years ago um some guy went on a quest to find to find the best stake in the world and the, that's where they ended up settling on so uh and i've always been um kind of following after them I, I feel like they they do a lot of yeah they're good examples yeah so and especially when you like brian i know me and you have talked about this about like what they do in terms of you know really bringing back the the like the american cowboy you know and and no fences but like that that is the, really the cool. in herding and going out and, and living with the so, animals up in the mountains that's, yeah I think like, that's just awesome. when i heard when i heard glenn talk about that i was like mm, i could i could get into that like i could i could potentially leave this to just go do that that sounds awesome um and brian i'll ask you a question uh i'm curious on what your goals are so like I, I you know I, I basically only know you through the lens of TikTok and the you know the conversations we've had is like what are your goals as a rancher in terms of scale? I mean I know you you say your place is like seven thousand acres, um, right? So it, but you do a lot of is it custom grazing or are you leasing that property or custom grazing? So I I take in cows. Okay. Um, I, are your goals to eventually like go all cow calf to like, I, I just want to know kind of like what your, your goals are for your place. I'm eventually heading towards uh multi-species, okay. multi-species grazing and cow calf leading to direct marketing. Okay. Uh, but there's always going to be some custom grazing in there in the mix. Um, Cause that's my richer custom grazing. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, custom grazing is, it's, it's a good second base hit. And like we discussed earlier, you know, in the cow calf business, you have a variable length payoff and that payoff at the end is variable. You know, you could start on a project now and in three years, the cattle market situation could be completely, yeah. you know, 180 degrees from where we yeah, think. You may not, have any or, <laughs> may not have any processing plant or there may be another pandemic that happens that completely changes the marketing dynamic. Right. So I think at the end of the day, you know, we have to be adaptable mm -hmm. and flexible as producers yeah. and with, with not only our management, but with our marketing mm -hmm. and have groundwork to where, you know, we have a, we have a path 
that we can go down and we can either maybe swerve a little left or swerve a little right, but we're not locked into our lane. Absolutely. So, Michael, it has been absolutely fantastic to have you here with us. It's been a great conversation and I definitely look forward to doing it again sometime. So, closing out, where can everybody find you um, on social media? Any websites or products you want to take an opportunity to push real quick? I have no products to peddle. I'll only truth. Uh, and because people can find me. Uh, we're pretty much, we're Reverend Wild Ranch on all social platforms, whether it's Facebook, Perfect. Instagram, TikTok. Um, though, if you really want to see the day-to-day, you're going to have to be on TikTok because Instagram and Facebook get ignored a lot because uh, that's not where the attention is. So um that that's pretty much it but uh, yeah guys i've enjoyed the crap out of this it's been great so uh i look forward to talking to you again soon all right michael it has been absolutely fantastic and thank you again thank you so much yeah thank you and uh ck you want to take us out of here again all right this is ranting reboot with michael kinsey talk to you guys later